Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host. Today, we'll be talking with Eleonora Macchiacci, author of Volatile States in International Politics. How are you doing today? And correct me if I mispronounce your name. Hi, Deidre. You did a great job with my name. I'm indeed Eleonora Macchiacci, and I am doing great. I'm very excited to be here with you. Oh, we're so happy to have you today on the podcast. Please start by telling us a few words about yourself and how you got started with this project. I am an assistant professor of political science at Amherst College in Massachusetts, where I also run the International Relations Lab. I was trained as a student of international relations, and during my training, I heard this sentence uttered in one way or another over and over again, that actors that have the most material capabilities also have the most power. That is to say, those that have bigger armies or a bigger gross domestic product or a bigger market for goods also uh, have the ability to do what they want and they also have the ability to make others do what those others would not otherwise do. So more material capabilities equal more power, except when we look at the real world, this sentence does not seem to be accurate. Sometimes it's those countries with fewer material capabilities that can make the more powerful ones, the so-called more powerful ones, do what they want. And I have a bunch of articles on this. And still other times, all those material capabilities really get you into trouble. They really give you an incentive to behave in a volatile way. Why is that the case? That's where the idea for the book came from. Now, you started the book by talking about India and Cuba. Tell us the significance of that discussion in the book. So India and Cuba are very different countries, however you slice it. Uh, Think about their location, think about their size, think about the form of government, and so on. But what was striking is that in 2015, they shared the spotlight. And the reason why they were both on the spot in the spotlight is because they started some serious reconciliation efforts with their arch nemesis, the U.S. in the case of Cuba and Pakistan in the case of India. But in the case of Cuba and the United States, change stuck much longer than in the case of India and Pakistan. Why? Um, In the book, I argue that volatility in India's behavior toward Pakistan had a lot to do with it. You mention other historical events at the beginning of the book. Tell the audience the importance of these events. Yes, you're right. At the beginning of the book, I put a lot of uh, historical events. I talk about uh, India's behavior toward China, India's behavior toward Pakistan. I talk about the U.S. and South Korea, Israel and Iran, and so on and so forth. The purpose of that section is to make the reader look at things from a new perspective. These these events that I mentioned are often uh, uh, very well known. 
for example, India, we know, has a tumultuous relationship with Pakistan and with India. But uh, too often, we expect India to behave toward Pakistan the way it behaves toward China. They, in both cases, we expect uh, similarly conflictual relations. But again, this is not the case. If we look under the hood, if we actually carefully pay attention to what goes on in the international arena, we find that India's behavior toward Pakistan is much more volatile than its behavior toward China. So again, why is that the case? That's the question that uh, those historical events aim at evoking for the reader. Now, what is your definition of volatile? So volatile states' uh, behavior uh, toward their counterpart is behavior that shifts toward more cooperation or more conflict in ways that appear to be inconsistent to observers. And this is the key. There's a shift toward more cooperation and more conflict, and that shift appears to be inconsistent to observers. Now, volatility varies. Some countries might be more volatile in their behaviors than others, but there's also a variation within some countries' behavior. So some countries might be more volatile at certain points, but not at other uh, points in time. Volatile behavior is, is more frequent in international polit- politics than scholar thinks. But international relations scholars do not focus on volatile change often enough. Would you say that volatility is the root of international politics? I think that uh, volatility uh, uh, matters greatly for international um, politics. Um, it's a form of change that is very destabilizing, destabilizing for, uh, for the processes uh, that take place in everyday international politics. And they range from episodes of cooperation, like trade, like summits, and episodes of uh, conflict. I would say it's uh, very pervasive in international politics, if not uh, the, uh, the root of all international politics. Now, how would you say international relations scholars define understanding change and how is this important in volatility? So when that's, that's a great question. When, when I, ask, I ask scholars do study change, but when they focus on change, we, they focus on change that is consistent. There's to say there's not volatile. So how can you study change that is consistent? Um, for example, scholars tend to focus on escalation. When someone escalates, they change their behavior. So escalation is a form of change. But their behavior changes by becoming consistently more and more conflictual. So when we study escalation, we study change in behavior that is consistent. And why do scholars tend to focus mostly on consistent change, such as escalation, but also de-escalation cycles and so on? Well, that's because scholars of IR are fellow human beings. And us humans have a tendency to seek patterns. That's how we have evolved. We've evolved to be pattern seekers. And frankly, this tendency, this innate tendency, works very well most of the times. 
except for those times when it spills into the so-called hindsight bias or the, quote, I knew it all along, end quote, bias, which is this tendency we have to dismiss the surprising events as having been much more predictable than they actually were. If we dismiss surprising events and we only focus on consistencies, we cannot see volatility. And that's a huge problem because volatility matters a great deal in international politics. Now, why does volatility matter? So volatility amounts to inconsistent change and humans hate inconsistent change. Imagine I tell you change is coming. Not going to tell you when. I'm not going to tell you what it looks like either, but change is coming. That's pretty distressful to hear. On the international arena, volatility means fear. If your counterpart shifts their behavior in inconsistent ways, you will grow more fearful. And we know that in international politics, fear is at the basis of what we call the spiral model of conflict. In the spiral model of conflict, countries systematically inch closer and closer to conflict, even though neither of them has any intention of doing so. And in fact, I find that disputes initiated against a country that has volatile foreign policy behavior, those disputes are significantly more likely to escalate to higher levels of violence than other disputes that are initiated against non-volatile states. But not only does volatility fuel fear and then potentially catalyzes the spiral model of conflict, volatility also uh, decreases the probability, the possibility of sustained cooperation because volatility makes it very hard to establish trust. To trust someone is to form a clear expectation as to how that someone will behave in the future. But in order for you to create expectation as to how someone will behave in the future, you have to observe past behavior. And if past behavior is volatile, is inconsistent, you will have a very hard time forming expectations about future behavior, which means you will have a hard time uh, forming trust, which means you will have a hard time forming a sustained cooperative uh, uh, relationship with someone who is volatile. So in some, volatility matters for two reasons. It fuels fear and it hampers the probability, the possibility of sustained cooperation because it damages trust. Now, where does volatility emerge from? So in my book, I look at, I look at uh, um, the interaction between uh, um, states. So I look at volatile uh, behavior that uh, uh, develops from one country toward the other. And I argue that volatility, um, uh, in order to understand uh, volatile behavior, we have to look both at permissive conditions uh, for volatility and catalyzing conditions for volatility. Permissive conditions of volatility uh, reside in what we call the international arena and uh, catalyzing conditions for volatility reside in the domestic arena. What is the central argument you are making in your book? The central argument of the book is the theory uh, of the origins of volatility. Uh, And in a nutshell, I would say that volatility emerges when you have domestic groups, domestic interest groups that compete 
for the definition of domestic politics. This is the domestic uh, arena I was talking about. And you have greater material capabilities. This is vis-a-vis your counterpart. And this is the international part of the argument I was mentioning earlier. But how does it uh, work? So when, when countries acquire greater and greater capabilities, they start acquiring more and more foreign policy options. Okay, let me give you an example. Imagine a country acquires nuclear weapons. Uh, Now, all of a sudden, my argument is that country uh, has greater material capabilities and those greater material capabilities in the form of nuclear weapons know-how or even like a nuclear weapon per se, uh, expands the options that 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 country has, uh, uh, both cooperative and conflictual. Conflictual, of course, it's a nuclear weapon, but also cooperative. So, for example, we know historically that the states can now not only threaten nuclear repercussions, but they can also offer nuclear know-how for cooperative ventures and perhaps down the road even some nuclear protection. So you see how material capabilities are a permissive condition for volatility. They give a state more options, both cooperative and conflictual. And if volatility is shifting inconsistently toward more cooperation and more conflict, having more options is key. Now, material capabilities are a permissive condition. Permissive means they make volatility possible, but this doesn't mean that uh, uh, they make volatility automatic. Um, In other words, uh, uh, these these material capabilities tell you you have more cooperative and conflictual options at your disposal, but it doesn't tell you that you will use more of those options. What makes it so that a country ping-pongs inconsistently toward more cooperation and conflict is the presence of clashing domestic interests. In other words, when you have domestic groups with different preferences and those domestic groups can compete in the domestic arena, uh, they will each prefer distinct states' behaviors on the international arena. They will push the state to use those options on the international uh, arena. And so the outcome is greater, greater, uh, more shifts toward more cooperation and conflict, provided that you have greater material capabilities. Now tell the audience about your research design. Ah, that's a great question. So my my research design has three parts. The first thing I do is I propose a measure of volatility. I want to be able to capture volatile change without mistaking volatile change for other forms of change. Again, escalation, de-escalation cycles, and so on. And also without making assumptions as to which state will be more volatile and when. The second part of the research design is using a large and statistical analysis. I want to test the validity of my argument across time and space while also controlling for possible alternative explanations. And the third component to the research design is I want to complement the bird's eye view that the large end analysis offers with an in-depth analysis using archival data on one single case of volatile behavior to retrace how volatility looks like and what volatility feels like in everyday interactions among states. When countries de-escalate conflict, do they change their behaviors? Yes, 
Yes, they must change their behavior. Their behavior becomes less and less conflictual. But here's the, here's the thing. Uh, their behavior becoming less and less conflictual, that's just what happens on average. In some cases, countries that de-escalate do so consistently. So again, their behavior does get less and less conflictual, and that is it. But in other cases, they, while they de-escalate, they also at times inconsistently shift toward more cooperation. So they de-escalate, but they do so which, with much more volatility than their counterpart. So de-escalation is an important concept, is what I'm trying to say, but it's not enough to understand states' relations <coughs> because it doesn't capture uh, volatility, excuse me. Now, you talk about mixed findings in the field of international relations. How do scholars address some of the mixed findings? That's a great question. So when when I started when I started uh, uh, um, studying volatility, I realized very quickly the scholars of IR dismiss it uh, um, in one of two ways. The first camp suggests that volatility is everywhere all the time. Volatility is a constant of foreign policy behaviors. It's a part of the course if you do foreign policy. As long as countries conduct international politics, you see volatility. And that is that. Why does this matter? Well, if volatility is a constant, if it's a natural byproduct of doing international relations, we should not really worry about it. Volatility is just uh, white noise in the background. We should tune it, tune it out. But the problem is that empirically, if you look at the data, this is not true. In some cases, states behave in more volatile ways than in other cases. And in fact, some states tend, on average, to be way more volatile than other states. So the question remains, why is that the case? The other camp suggests the opposite. That is to say, instead of saying that volatility is everywhere all the time, they say volatility is nowhere to be found, volatility does not exist. This camp suggests if we focus on specific issue areas, there's a lot of consistency in political science and in foreign policy. Um, so the argument is as follows. Uh, states within an issue area, imagine trade as an issue area, or an, uh, security relations as another issue area. Within those issue areas, countries are very... Uh, um, consistent in their behavior toward other countries. So maybe you observe volatility in the way in which the U.S. behaves toward China starting in the 2020, in 2020. But actually, if you just focus on trade or you just focus on security, you'll see a lot of consistency. This approach I found not satisfying. And the reason is that there's a lot of literature that says that these issue areas uh, are not exogenous, are not a given. They develop... Uh, as a choice of states. And I was states are the ones that decide we cooperate so well in, in matters of, of trade, we should also cooperate in matters of security. Or they might say we should cooperate on trade, but we should be vigilant uh, when it comes to security, when it comes to China. So the question <coughs> is not solved by looking at specific issue areas. Now, you discussed the role of power and interest in volatility in state behavior toward their counterparts. Can you tell us more about this? 
Uh, I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? In your book, you discuss the role of power and interest in volatility in states' behavior towards their counterparts. Can you tell us more about this? Yes. So um, in order to explain volatility, you have to explain uh, why change occurs, number one. And number two, you have to explain why this change occurs in inconsistent ways. If you don't have change, you don't have volatility, you have stability. If you don't have inconsistency, you might have escalation, escalation cycles, you don't have volatility. So in order to theorize about the determinants, of, the determinants of volatility, I had to think of two conditions. What makes volatility possible and what catalyzes it? And to me, power is what makes it possible. It gives you more options. Whereas, <coughs> excuse me, what makes it so that it, it's actualized is domestic interests. So again, both factors really matter, but they play very different roles in explaining volatility. Volatility and measurement. Explain this. Um, this is this was a huge part of, of the book. Um, when I set to measure volatility, I faced a big challenge. Um, first, when we see change in states' behavior toward more cooperation or, or more conflict, how do we know it's really volatile behavior as opposed to other forms of behavior? And second, how do I avoid making assumptions as to where I would see more or less volatility? And so in order to address these two concerns, I proceed uh, uh, as follows. I do three things. First, I look at the data and I build a time series that contains all the instances of one state's behavior towards a counterpart. All the instances of India's behavior toward China, for example, or India's behavior toward Pakistan. I create a sequence that looks at episodes that are, such as um, moments of cooperation, such as summits, such as trade agreements, but also moments of conflict, such as threats or actual disputes and so on. That time series allows me to identify all instances of change of time. Number two, I ask myself, what type of change is this? Is this volatile change? To isolate a volatile change, I use the Box Jenkins procedure in time series analysis, and I systematically strip away all that change in the time series that comes from sources that are not volatility. It might come from trends, it might come from cycles, and so on. I strip it all away. And finally, the third step, what I am left with, is a series of residuals that show all the change that takes place and that is inconsistent and volatile. I take the standard deviation of these residuals and the standard devi uh, deviation allows me to say how volatile was India toward China during this year? And how does that compare with how volatile India was toward Pakistan that same year? Or how does it compare with how volatile China was toward India in that same year? What are the advantages of this three-step procedure? First, it avoids assuming that all the change we see is volatile. And this for me was huge. Volatility matters, but volatility is not all that happens in international politics. And two, it avoids a one-solution-fits-all approach. I can look at the data to see how volatile India was toward Pakistan, India was toward China every year. 
And finally, it gives me a method that I can use in any context, not just in the study of states' behavior. You can take this method and use it to study non-state behaviors, the behavior of rebels in international politics, for example, or of insurgents or of international organizations, uh, for the matter, terrorist groups and so on. So it's a very pliable tool. Now, in your book, you use the concepts alliances and rivalries. How are these concepts helpful with explanations? So alliance and rivalries are some of the most quintessential classifications that we use in international politics. I would go as far as saying that the bread and butter of international politics. Allies are, of course, the states that commit to each other's security in ways that vary from alliance to alliance. And rivalries are those states that engage in conflict with one another more often. These classifications are the bread and butter of IR, like I just said, for a reason. They are very useful. They do reflect the reality of the international system. But these concepts, when we commit to it too blindly, also tend to hide a lot of what happens in international politics. For example, some alliances are very volatile and others are not. In fact, there may be alliances that are just as volatile as some rivalries, if not more. And, 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 and so I use, I, I, I tackle alliances and, and rivalries in the book to show the reader, look, even when we take these classifications that are so quintessential in IR, volatility can teach us something we didn't know before. Now, in your book, you use the N analysis of countries involved in both strategic and enduring rivalry over a period of 1948 to 1992. What did you find? That's a great question. Um, um, when I study, so I study these. It's 36 pairs of rivals, as you said, and and I find uh, three things. So I use this to test my theory. And I find that I am right. Uh, when, when one rival behaves in inconsistent ways toward another, that's because the domestic interests in the volatile rival are clashing over foreign policy issues and its relative power is increasing. A second thing that I find is that both uh, these domestic and international factors matter, but their job is different. So power is, again, is permissive, so it's a necessary but not sufficient condition but interests instead are catalyzing. And the third thing that I find is that, the, and this is very important, is that uh, the effect of power and interest on volatility is robust to controlling for alternative explanations. And here there are a lot of alternative explanations that I engage. Some of them are uh, the leader type. What if the leader is is volatile and not and not the interests or what if the leader engages in the so-called madman uh, madman behavior? But I also control for the polarity of the system. What if volatility is something that was more uh, common in the in the Cold War than after the Cold War, or vice versa, and so on? So the chapter is useful to take a bird's eye view of volatility <clears throat> among rivals over uh, a long period of time, controlling for alternative explanations and finding out whether my theory uh, uh, holds for for these countries during this period of time, controlling for alternative explanations. Now, in Chapter 5, you talk about France's behavior 
toward the U.S. Tell us what happened. Chapter five um, complements the large end analysis chapter because it focuses on an alliance and, and, and offers an, a detailed study of it. Um, the chapter starts with a startling quote that I found during my uh, research at the LBJ archives in beautiful Austin, Texas. Um, the quote says something like, in 1966, relations between the U.S. and France had reached their nadir. The U.S. could do little more than maintaining appearances. This is huge. France is the U.S. oldest allies. We are in the midst of a Cold War between the United States and uh, um the Soviet Union. France is in NATO. Article 5 in NATO says that an attack against one country, one member, is an attack against everybody. So all the members of NATO are committed, deeply committed, to each other's security. How can we how 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 can this moment be? How can these relations have reached the nadir? How can the US uh, do nothing more than man, or little more than maintaining appearances? The chapter explores <clears throat> several years, 12 years in the relations between France and the United States from 1954 to 1966 to explain how we came about, how this moment came about. And the answer has to do with volatility. So I find three things in this chapter. The first is I can document by retracing the day-to-day -day interactions between France and the United States I can document how volatility in France's behavior arises and it arises uh, and it arises from an interaction between domestic interests uh, uh, that compete for the definition of France's foreign policy and uh, changes in France's relative power. So France becomes uh, increasing more, increasingly more powerful relative to the United States. Both these factors translate into an increase in volatility in France's behavior. The second thing that I find is that other explanations that have been um, often used to explain this uh, uh, rupture in the relation between France and the United States in 1966 uh, do not really explain uh, volatility very well. Uh, chief among these explanations is the presence of mercurial uh, leaders, a.k.a. Uh, Charles de Gaulle. Um, it doesn't cut it. Uh, volatility had started well before uh, the Gaul as, had entered um, the scene. Um, and the third thing that uh, I find is that as France behavior increasingly becomes volatile toward the United States, the U.S. decision makers react to that volatility by growing more and more distrustful during France. And remember what I said at the beginning, uh, uh, the fact that uh, uh, volatility catalyzes or, or makes it hard to establish or maintain trust is one of, of the biggest problems uh, uh, with volatility. It's kind of nice to go into the archives and see these decision makers say, we don't understand what France is up to. We cannot predict their behavior. They've behaved very inconsistently. And so those are the findings in this chapter. And, I, and, and that's the role of the chapter in the book is to zoom in 
and, and actually see what volatility in the day-to-day -day interactions look like and what its repercussions are. Now, tell us, what are the advantages of studying volatility in a state's behavior? So I'd say there are at least two advantages to studying uh, volatility. Um, one is uh, uh, it can provide the missing piece to many, many puzzles in, in international relations. Uh, remember, the book is about volatility, so it's about explaining where inconsistent behavior comes from. And paradoxically, because perhaps paradoxically, because it tells us where inconsistent behavior comes from, it can also tell us a lot about all those times uh, countries want to behave in a consistent ma manner, but they do not manage to. Think about all the times countries want to build a reputation or think about all the times they want uh, to commit to their words uh, uh, and so on. Um, sometimes uh, many scholars ask, uh, why do countries fail at committing? Uh, why do they uh, um, uh, commit to something and then they find themselves having to renege on their word? Results have been mixed on many of uh, these areas of research. Research on commitment costs uh, uh, or, or uh, audience costs, commitments problem, reputation, and so on and, and so forth. But let me give you an example. Take the research on commitment problems. So commitment problems emerge when states have an incentive to cheat in the future on commitments they take in the present. States, it turns out, they're just like us. Uh, they have in incentive to renege on, on their words. Because they have these incentives, uh, because states have these incentives, and because we all know they do, their counterparts have to take a gamble in the present. They have to decide whether to cooperate now, today, while knowing that cooperation might not last into the future. So the question that studies of commitment problems uh, take on is what, what, what can convince states to, uh, 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 to favor cooperation, right? What uh, can states observe about other states that makes them go, I think they'll stick to their word. I think this is going to work. So scholars are divided on this issue. Some argue, uh, take some argue that uh, uh, having democratic institutions is a pro. It helps states stay committed because democratic institutions open countries to pub open countries up to public uh, uh, scrutiny, which makes it costly to renege on their commitments. Others instead argue that democracies make states less likely to stick to their commitment. Um, you know, uh, uh, you're not, uh, you, you have incentives that comes from elections to actually renege on your word, and the domestic audience, turns out, uh, doesn't punish you a lot for it. So who's right? Well, my book argues that we've been missing a bunch of pieces. <clears throat> we are missing the role of power. Countries with more power will have more options uh, um, so reneging on their commitments might be more appealing to them. But whether they renege on their commitments or not will also depend on their domestic interest and how much they clash. So you see these findings on volatility can put our conversation forward in the area of credible commitments in international relations. And that's just about an example of how these findings can speak to other 
areas of research that look at consistency in behavior, reputation styles, commitment problem, audience costs, and so on and so forth. The second uh, uh, um, advantage to study volatility is that um, knowing where volatility comes from can stave off some of volatility's worst consequences. Remember, we said volatility uh, stokes conflict and challenges trust. Uh, when we observe volatile behavior, we grow fearful we, because we don't understand what the volatile actor is, is up to. Um, but scholars have argued that you trust someone better when you have an informed guess as to why they act the way they do. The way, the way they do. Now, it's still a guess, but it's an informed guess. And knowing where volatility comes from can help you understanding, can help you understand where states come from uh, uh, with their behavior. So while understanding where volatility comes from might not prevent you from uh, witnessing volatility, it can provide you with a context uh, for volatility. Now, what is the message you want to leave the reader with once they finish your book? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I'd, I'd love for the reader to walk away from a book with one, um, with one question going through their head. Uh, and this is the question. What is the price we pay for this hardwired tendency of ours to downplay or ignore volatility? in international politics. Again, seeking patterns has worked very well for us from an evolutionary point of view. But when we all fall prey to the I knew it all along bias or hindsight bias, we often uh, uh, miss a lot. We fail to learn from current events. When we face new situations, a new situation on an international arena, our gut reaction is to compare it to old ones, to situations we've faced before. We use analogies, for example. So in, in, in using analogies, we miss what really is new about current events as they develop. Think about how we talk about current wars between Ukraine and Russia or Israel and Hamas. We emphasize the long history between these actors and that's, of course, important. It's necessary even. But it is not and cannot be the whole story when it comes to explaining current events. What happens then when we say, yes, there's a lot of history between these two countries, and these are the things that are noticeably different in this specific war or crisis and that surprise us? Think about how the conversation grows richer when we open our mind to inconsistent volatile change, which amounts to opening our mind to surprises. And if opening our mind to these surprises allows us so to speak to see the international arena in full colors, think about how much richer our theories can become uh, once we allow for, uh, uh, for surprises. We allow to be, to be surprised, or we even uh, 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 seek out surprises as we observe international politics. That's the one thing I would like the reader to take away from the book. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? 
Yes. So uh, as, as I was researching volatility, I kept coming across this phenomenon, which I found very interesting, which is uh, when countries fight one another, um, uh, they often destroy the territory in which the conflict, in which the war or conflict takes place, uh, either their territory or their opponent territory. And uh, uh, we call this, uh, uh, this behavior uh, scorched earth technique or techniques. And I noticed that both combatants and civilians engage uh, in scorched earth techniques. And perhaps even more interestingly, what I kept noticing is that both powerful actors and less powerful actors engaged in this behavior. A behavior that is quintessential self-defeating behavior. And the answer, and the question I have, I don't have the answer yet, but the question I kept asking myself is why? Why are so many wars fought over territory? And yet we see all these actors, both the more powerful ones and the less powerful ones, engage in this destructive, self-defeating behavior. So what I'm doing right now is looking at the historical records. So uh, famous and less famous cases of scorched earth techniques being used. Think about the 1812 uh, fire of Moscow. Think about Agent Orange being deployed in uh, Vietnam. Think about Saddam Hussein burning Kuwaiti oil fields in the 1990, uh, 1991 uh, Gulf War. Uh, uh, why, why those behaviors take place in those historical instances? But I'm also looking at uh, how other fields have looked into this issue. What does biology have to say about uh, this type of human behavior? How about psychology? How about economics? So that's the journey I am on right now. Well, we'll be looking forward to hearing more about this project. And thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure.